and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Peter Reinhardt, founder and CEO of Segment. The rise of SaaS has liberated the enterprise stack. Products are now bought into an organization at the atomic level, and decentralized decision-making has enabled modern tech companies to move incredibly quickly to solve specific problems. The challenge of the speed, however, is the complexity that a web of unrelated applications creates. Enter Segment, the analytics tool to end all integrations. Segment has raised over $250 million from leading investors and aims to be the de facto layer of stitching together disparate customer data for organizations. It was a pleasure to have Peter on the show, and his perspective on scaling a hyper-growth company was incredibly insightful. Welcome, Peter, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Peter, I'm excited to have you on the show today and dive you know, pretty deeply into Segment and your perspective on building and scaling a high-growth company. But you know, before we jump in, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey from class metrics to Segment. Sure. So, I studied aerospace engineering at MIT. And my uh, roommates were both computer science majors. And uh, we had been talking about starting a company together since freshman year. And, uh, you know, we've been living together for three years and we're really excited about uh, starting a company. So we applied to Y Combinator uh, and got in with this kind of wacky idea called Class Metric. And the idea was to give students this button to push to say, I'm confused. And the professor would see this graph over time of how confused the students were. We thought it was a really cool idea. A bunch of MIT professors thought it was a cool idea. And, um, you know, basically wrote a ton of code over the summer during our our YC batch and then raised about 600K coming out of uh, Y Combinator Demo Day. And then we deployed this classroom lecture tool as the fall semester started at MIT and Harvard and um, Boston University and Northeastern and so forth. Uh, And it was a total disaster. Basically, all the students opened their laptops, and they all just went straight to Facebook. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was awful. Um, and we were incredibly apologetic to all the professors whose like, classrooms we had you know, destroyed the focus in for at least one session. Um, and basically, two weeks after raising the money, I called back all the investors and said, it turns out this is a terrible idea. And they're like, what do you want us to do with the money? Uh, and so that then led to them saying, well, we invested for the team. Go find something else. And so we spent the next uh, little over a year sort of lost in the woods, searching through a couple different ideas, uh, a music app and an analytics tool and so forth, and uh, eventually uh, open sourced an internal library that we had built. And and that ended up being Segment, which has, of course, been a, a wild ride over the last five years. Yeah. So, you know, talk about that a little bit more. You know, Segment, you fast forward, um, and Segment's a really important company and in the data and analytics ecosystem today, right? It's a clean middle layer between all sources of data and, and then destinations of data. And you know, mm-hmm. the business for those that are listening um, that might not know as much about Segment, because I think you guys are not a best kept secret, but you're you're a company that's you know done a lot of really interesting things, but kind of trotted along. You've grown materially, raised over a hundred million dollars, you know, over the past you know decade or so. Give us a brief of what Segment is and where the business is today. Yeah. So we, I'll tell you how we stumbled across it, because that's also kind of interesting. Uh, so we originally built, when we were building Classmetric, we built this little library internally that could take web analytics data and send it to Google Analytics, to Kissmetrics, and to Mixpanel. And basically, we were trying to figure out which of those tools we should use. We couldn't figure it out, so we decided we're just going to send data to all three, and we'll figure it out later. 
So we had this 50 lines of code that did this routing, routing multiplexing thing. And we kind of forgot about it four months later, cleaned it up a little bit more, four months later, cleaned it up a little bit more. And by that time, as I mentioned before, we were trying to build an analytics tool and we kept encountering this problem and trying to sell our analytics tool that people already had an analytics tool installed and they didn't really want to go to the effort of installing another analytics tool. And so my co-founder Ilya was like, well, what if we added, um, added ourselves as the fourth service that this multiplexer could send data to? And then every time someone has this objection that they already have an analytics tool, we'll tell them about the multiplexer, analytics.js, and, and try to get them to use that. And that way we sort of break out of this implementation mode and we can actually compete on product. So we did that, open sourced it, started sending it out to people, and people started replying, well, oh, this is awesome. Like, I love this, this data multiplexer, uh, but like, I don't really want to use your analytics tool. <laughs> and so this, this goes on for like four months or so. And finally, we get to December 2012. It's clear that our analytics tool is just not is failing from a business perspective, not going to work. And uh, so we have this conversation with, with Paul Graham because we realize we're pretty lost. We've spent 500 out of our 600K. So we have like one more shot in the bank, basically. And, um, you know, Paul Graham sort of bring up to speed and he says, well, you know, just to be clear, you've spent half a million dollars and you have nothing to show for it. <laughs> So we sat down and we were like, okay, let's figure out what we're going to do with this last 100K. We, we get this last shot. And uh, my co-founder, Ian, is like, you know what? Uh, I, I think there's a big business behind Analytics.js, this data multiplexer thing. And I was like, that is literally the worst idea I've ever heard. Uh, it's 500 lines of code. It's already open source. Like, I do not understand how you could conceivably build a business around that. And so we fought about it all day long. And I went home and was like racking my brains trying to figure out how to kill this thing and eventually figured it out. So we came in the next day uh, and I was like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a beautiful landing page. Like really going to pitch the value of Analytics.js in sending data to multiple places. And I'll have an email sign-up form at the bottom where we can, uh, you know, let people register their interest in using this thing. And in particular, using a hosted version of this thing. And we'll put that up on Hacker News and we'll see what happens. And I was thinking like, this will definitely kill it. And uh, so we, we did that, built a landing page, put it up on Hacker News. I started paying attention to other things, trying to figure out what we were going to do. And meanwhile, this thing goes straight to the top of Hacker News. Uh, gets hundreds of, upvotes, hundreds of upvotes, thousands of email signups. Uh, people are reaching out to us on LinkedIn, demanding access to this beta, which of course doesn't exist. And um, there's an intense product market fit moment. So I think what, you know, we sort of had this accidental product market fit discovery. And it, it, it turns out that the problem of taking customer data from a website and mobile app and, and servers and payment systems and help desks, all these different customer touch points, taking data from all those places and then multiplexing that through a single pipe out to all the different customer touch points where you want to use that data, whether that's a data warehouse or a, a data lake or an analytics tool or an email marketing tool or an ad conversion pixel, et cetera, that data multiplexing between all these different places is both incredibly difficult for companies to do internally and really valuable for them to um, hire someone to do externally. And so uh, that's what our product does. Uh, we, we help companies move that data around. And so talk, talk a little bit more about kind of that nuance or that clarity on how you know, your perspective on product market fit has shifted, right? Because as you, were, as you were describing that, there was a lot of interesting nuances there of, you know, you had a certain hypothesis that this idea wasn't going to work, right? Um, but then as soon as you took kind of the, the lean steps or the lean approach to put a landing page on, get distribution, et cetera, um, you saw you saw an outcome, right? And then the idea of orienting towards that outcome 
becomes more aligning with, you know, kind of customer pull versus your push on, uh, you know, on the world itself. So talk, talk a little bit more about kind of your perspective on product market fit when you really distill, you know, how that moment actually launched the business. Yeah, I think our first two ideas, one was the classroom lecture tool and the other was this analytics tool. Both of them were very vision driven. So they were like, the world should operate this way. This would be a better way for the world to operate. And therefore, it's a good idea. So we're going to build it and then the world is going to use it. And I think we we're, it was a pretty humbling experience because like, frankly, the world kind of doesn't care, right? Uh, what you think of in terms of how it should operate. Like that's not how businesses are built, right? Businesses are built on the back of the world has X problem and you come up with a solution to it. And um, so I, I think, you know, we, we basically learned that uh, you, you, can't, you can't sort of fight the world. You have to figure out what the world wants and, and figure out how to build that. Um, and interestingly, a really common way of doing that is to take a tool that you build for yourself internally and see if the rest of the world has a similar problem, right? That's, that's obviously our story with Analytics.js being you know, open sourced and finding product market fit. That's the same as Dropbox's story and Slack's story and, uh, and so on. So I think there's, there's some repeatability there. I think the other thing is we also had this notion that product market fit was something that sort of comes in shades of gray uh, in the sense that you know, you could be a feature or a, a slight tweak away from finding product market fit. And I, I think that's really misguided in retrospect, where uh, in, in reality, I think most moments of finding product market fit are extremely clear. Uh, for us, it was launching on Hacker News and you, you like you couldn't, it wasn't like one metric moved a little bit or like one customer expressed interest. It was like literally thousands of people were paying attention to this thing, saw value in it, signing up, wanting to know when this beta was going to be available, like uh, issuing pull requests, like every metric went nuts. And um, yeah, it was just extraordinarily clear. And, and I think the Dropbox founders described their own product market fit moment as, as stepping on a landmine. And, and how do, you, how do yeah. you continue to maintain that kind of principle as you develop the next set of products, right? So I, I think there's a piece around it when you're first getting started, kind of going from zero to one, but the infamous, you know, when you're going from one to N, how do you continue to maintain that sort of energy as opposed to getting caught in the trap of, you know, customization, incumbency, and kind of disassociating with customer needs, right? Your business, the state that your business is in, you know, 10,000 plus, I think 15,000 plus customers, right? is obviously mm -hmm. in a very, very different um, place than it is when you're just getting started and you have a, a bunch of different structural challenges that come to bear. Yeah. So it is different. It is different finding second product market fit than first product market fit. And the, the real issue is that when you're finding the first product market fit, you can change who your audience is and you can change what the product is. And so you have these two shifting things that you can try to get to mix and match with each other, which is uh, extremely challenging. When you're searching for second product market fit, you have the benefit that your audience is fixed because you're largely going to be selling to the same companies, the same buyers, et cetera, which then means you can just focus on products to solve their problems, which means you can just focus on a well-described group of users and what their problems are. And so what we've found is since then, it is you know, in the same mold of, of trying to find a problem that the world has as opposed to trying to tell the world how it should work. It's really about digging in with customers uncomfortably deeply to understand what their actual problems are and how big those problems are for them. 
Um, and I, I think a lot of the same, it's easy to sort of delude yourself uh, in talking with someone as to whether they really have a problem. Like people are really nice and they'll, they'll say like, oh yeah, I totally understand the value in that. Uh, but that's not how people reply when they actually have a problem. When people actually have a problem, they're like, oh my God, you do what? Like, is there some way that we could get started on that now? Like, could we circumvent a beta? Like, I'll work through any security. It, like, people get creative in trying to get access to the thing when you really solve a problem for them. And so I think trying to uh, teach the product team here and make sure that we understand that as an organization has, has been um, sort of an ongoing project and one that's really exciting uh, to see pan out as um, I think you're hinting a little bit that over the past five years, we've been able to launch a number of new add-on products that uh, have all been pretty successful. And it's, it's really by using this process of going very, very, very deep into what problems our customers have. Let's talk about that interval a little bit more. Um, you know, I think too oftentimes in tech, we fall in love with you know, companies as a function of ideas, whereas you know, really great things, and I'm sure, I'm sure you can internalize this, really great things get built off the backs of you know, pretty rigorous and intentional operations. And I had Keith Ravois on the podcast last year, and we, we talked about this at length. Um, and you know, one of the things I'm always curious in, in talking with founders of high-scale organizations is, you know, how do you think about segmenting the business's growth into different intervals? So what have been the big jumps and the milestones for you in the mm -hmm. organization's growth where you've said, okay, we, you know, we, we need to revisit how we're operating and actually change it? The first big sort of inflection point for us was actually building a sales organization for the first time. And sales organization is a little bit of a high flute word for it. When we hired our first salesperson, uh, that was a huge inflection point. Um, and it was because we were terrible at sales. I specifically was terrible at sales. You know, we were engineers. We were coming from an MIT sort of open source tradition of like asking for money is hard, painful, culturally anathema. And so hiring a salesperson who knows how to ask for money, who knows how to lead a buyer through a process was incredibly um, fantastic salesperson too, but it was incredibly impactful. Um, and, you know, so in the first year after product market fit, we basically added no revenue and then we hired the first salesperson and the next 12 months we went from zero to two and a half million ARR. Uh, and then the next year from two and a half to 10. So just adding sales was a huge inflection point for us. Another major inflection point for us was actually changing pricing. I think um, pricing and packaging has a really outsized impact on how buyers think, like what buying process they go through, through how they think about the value, whether they can justify it easily internally. There's like a massive amount of friction or lack of friction that you can create by getting the pricing and packaging more right. Um, and so we had a, a pricing change in 2016 that uh, was enormously successful, and I'd say it's still a little rough around the edges, and we'll make some changes to it soon. But um, pricing, I think, and packaging is a very underlooked uh, or underused sort of um, impactful change that can really cause an inflection in a business, especially if you're in a new category. If you're in an existing category and, like, you know, the model is already set, like if you're building a CRM, you're going to sell per seat. Uh, but if you're in a new category, there's a lot of creativity that can go into the pricing. Yeah, one of, one of the things I'm hearing, Peter, is kind of this idea of rounding out the edges, right, and, and kind of building foundation a little bit more as you go, you know, mm -hmm. to each, you know, as, as each step of the business progresses. And I'm curious how, you know, as you put in more structure, right, um, obviously as, as the organization grows, there becomes this kind of healthy tension of managing agility versus speed, right? When it's your founding team, you know, 
you know, four of you in a room, you all know each other. There's a limited process, right? Mm -hmm. There's tons of speed. Uh, but at scale, you know, when you have 100 plus employees, 150 employees, that's obviously not tenable. What have been some of the tactical things you've done to bring in, you know, structure, but still maintain speed? And how have you thought through that kind of balance? Well, I think where in the equation you have speed and where in the equation you uh, don't have speed just changes. So, for example, when you're a really small company, yeah, sure, you can build something in a weekend and launch it. But you don't get any of the benefits of all the customers that you could reach because you have no reach, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think you, you swing your focus so that you can take advantage of the, of the big muscles that you have, right? So like when we launch a new product now, we can grow the revenue for that product dramatically faster than we could originally, like or, an order of magnitude faster. And that's because they're actually, if you put in the effort, which technically does slow down the launch, but if you put in the effort to build a beautiful landing page, to build uh, a sales playbook, to understand how to teach a sales rep to do discovery, um, et cetera, et cetera, then you actually, there's an enormous speed advantage that you get out of that. So I think you, you pay a speed price in some places and you get a huge speed advantage in, in other places. And I think on balance, actually, uh, you can move faster in go to market at, at, at larger scale. And it makes up for a lot of, or really honestly makes up for all of the uh, disadvantages that you might have in product development that cause you to quote unquote ship slower out of the gate. Um, but I, th I think uh, another piece is um, really teaching teams how to iterate towards product market fit. Um, I think, and, and helping teams take risk in, in searching for those product market fit moments. I think if you can maintain those two things, then you can keep developing sort of innovative new products that take on significant risk and that, um, you know, don't get mired down in too much process. As you've scaled as an organization, what are, what are other organizations, whether they're tech companies or non-tech companies, that you've taken inspiration from? And what are some of the specific practices you've implemented as a team that have worked well in allowing that scaling? Yeah, I think, um, I think Atlassian is, is a company that we would look up to. Uh, for two reasons. One, really impressive sort of organic growth in the broad developer community. And two, when it comes to go-to-market, actually extremely sophisticated. There's some developer-focused companies that are not that sophisticated on go-to-market um, and have sort of just grown by, by nature of like extremely good product market fit or network effects. But Atlassian is both developer-focused and extremely nuanced in their, in their go-to-market motions. For example, they have one of the most advanced sort of packaging and pricing um, efforts and, and systems that, um, that I've seen. So definitely would take it, uh, inspiration from Atlassian. I think organizationally, just really impressed by SpaceX. I think we might talk about that a little later in, in terms of mission to metrics kind of alignment. But um, SpaceX, SpaceX and, and probably Tesla too, just like incredible... Uh, alignment to like an overall mission and, and driving towards a really difficult task. Yeah. Talk, so talk, talk about that a little bit more, right? I, I love this. I find a lot of organizational inspiration from SpaceX as well. And, and the kind of mission to metrics idea that you, you mentioned, um, I think is an incredible way to drive kind of organizational clarity, but then actual practical, you know, know how and execution plans to actually achieve that clarity. Right. So tell, tell me a little bit more about kind of what you, find from SpaceX to be inspirational, um, kind of your perspective on mission to metrics. And then, um, you know, how have you applied that? At, how have you applied that and thought about that at segment? 
Yeah, I think the the original. I think there's something with space space efforts here, but um, I think the original sort of quote about mission to metrics actually was in the Apollo program, uh, which was you know someone was wandering the halls of Johnson Space Center late at night and saw a janitor, and they're like, "What are you doing?" And janitor turns around and says, "Putting a man on the moon." And uh, I think like when people deeply understand that that purpose. Um, and not to say that we've achieved that at segment, but when people really deeply understand that purpose, you get a sort of sense of alignment and urgency and other things that are really incredibly valuable. Um, and I think SpaceX, to a significant degree from what I've heard, has has achieved that internally. And, uh, you know, there the story is that someone goes and, and asks uh, a propulsion engineer what they're doing. I mean, avionics engineer and the avionics engineer says, uh, well, I'm, I'm, uh, we're sending people to Mars in order to get to Mars. We need a spacecraft that uh, can land back on Earth. In order to do that, we need a gimbaling space engine, and I work on the software systems for the gimbaling engine. And being able to tie, we're going to put someone on Mars to the software that I'm writing today, uh, I think is the sort of connection between mission and metrics that uh, allows people to find sort of daily inspiration in their work. It's super powerful. I want to talk a little bit about kind of your your role, your time, and how that's kind of transitioned and evolved <clears throat> as the company has grown. You know, Shane mm -hmm. Parrish of Farnham Street, uh, I'm a huge fan of his his writings. He's got a great post up um, that I think he actually took a lot of inspiration from Paul Graham on, on this idea of, you know, how to manage your schedule most effectively, right? Whether you're a maker or you're a manager, and, and in your case now, you know, a manager of managers. Mm -hmm. What have been some of the tactics you've used to kind of intentionally jump through each of these transition points, and what have you found that's worked for you well? One thing is just purposely reevaluating whether your priorities are still the relevant priorities. It's, it's easy to just sort of continue with the status quo, because like you wake up in the morning and you go in and there's some meetings on your calendar and there's emails in your inbox and you could just go, right? You could just do that stuff. But uh, actually just sitting back once a quarter, maybe once a month, depending, and like actually just saying like, okay, like full stop. The things on my calendar, are these the right things? Are they not? What are the key priorities? What are the things that actually drive the business forward? Uh, and am I working on those things? Or uh, are there great people already working on those things? And in fact, I should be thinking over this other hill or uh, about something that's broken that's critical. Um, so I think just taking the step back and reevaluating whether you're even working on the right things is, is, is step one. And then there's a lot of tools for ensuring that you actually do that. So one way is, you know, in the same as a company has a goal setting process is to attach yourself to that goal setting process. So we set our goals annually and quarterly like many companies do. Um, so that becomes then a natural cadence to reevaluate. Uh, another is to have an executive coach. Um, so I have a great coach who has sort of a Socratic method to asking me questions and probing my thinking. And I think that's incredibly helpful for evaluating a little more deeply than you might uh, grapple with yourself as to whether you are focused on the right things. Um, so yeah, I, I think it all just comes back though to, to actually stopping, pausing, and, and assessing whether the things that you're doing day to day are actually the things that you, that you should be. And is, is that the framework that you've used to kind of maintain your own you know, development to continue to stay commensurate and in line with the company's growth? Because there's always stories of, you know, whether it's founders being you know, replaced or not, um, there's, there's kind of a reality of in organizations that hyperscale super quickly, you know, oftentimes you can outgrow you know, your fit, right? And so I'm curious, as, as you think, as a CEO of a company that's obviously scaling very quickly, you know, what are the things you do or the resources you use? You mentioned an executive coach to kind of stay ahead of that curve and, and continue to match your personal development, you know, with the company's trajectory. 
Yeah, I think that's the biggest one. Two others that are maybe interesting or, or slightly more practical advice. One is uh, I formed with some friends who are also CEOs of similar stage companies. We formed a peer board. And basically, we would meet as a group of four CEOs and walk through all of each other's internal board materials and give each other crit and share notes on how different things were performing or how they might solve different problems. And so that was a hugely powerful way to basically uh, steal from each other in learning where each of us was weak or what problems we were facing. Because in some ways you face all the same problems, but you've tried to solve them in many different ways. And so that became an enormously valuable way of sharing knowledge. The other super tactical thing is uh, there was a period where I was feeling overwhelmed on email and uh, I started tracking whether or not for each individual email, I would manually increment a spreadsheet of whether or not that email was something that I actually should be replying to, handling, reading. Like, what should my interaction mode with this email be in an ideal world? And for many of them, in an ideal world, I just shouldn't even have gotten an email in the first place. Like, it should have gone to someone else, or it shouldn't have been a problem. And so once you start marking down email as a pretty good proxy for how you're spending your time, once you start marking down how your time is actually being allocated, you start to notice that, boy, there's a lot of things that should be delegated here or that I shouldn't even be involved in the process on. Those could be anything as small as a signature on a random doc that really should have a different signatory on up to like a decision about something that, that should be you know, empowered to, to uh, a VP or an exec. Um, and so I basically religiously tracked that over a period of months um, and wound down about 50% of my email volume just by better delegating the things that were actually coming through my inbox. What's the tactical process of that delegation, right? Obviously, it's conceptual. You can kind of bridge the gap to say, you know, hey, if you're getting you know, X kinds of emails, you might need to delegate or you might need to hire a resource, et cetera. But mm -hmm. how did you draw conclusions? How did you draw conclusions from your kind of email marketing process? And then what did you specifically do, you know, with your management team or so to, to kind of fix that, you know, fix that email uh, distribution? Yeah, so for example, I was the signatory on all customer contracts. It's like, why? That's not necessary. Like, yep. uh, that should be someone else. Uh, so, boom, that's like, you know, 5% of emails gone. Yeah. Uh, and then you're like, oh, well, you know, offer letters shouldn't be the same. So, you can just start marching through broad categories of things where when you hand that thing off, it, it actually indicates probably that some other part of it, like, why were you even looped in on that in, in the beginning? Like, shouldn't there have been some other, like, checksums around whether or not it was a legit contract? And so as you try to hand it off, you realize that there's also these sort of weak processes that need to be beefed up, um, which then can become an empowering task of, like, hey, like, you need to put in place X process so that this isn't necessary. Um, on down to decisions, like, oh, please review this, like, product requirements doc. It's like, you know what? Uh, you know, VP product or chief product officer should really be in charge of, of not only reviewing this, but uh, creating a product review system that doesn't even involve me. Um, and so then empowering uh, a product person to actually just run with an entire direction for, for a new product. Um, so I, I think um, taking the outside the building look, I think is helpful, which is that if you imagine yourself as not not being operational, but say after like 200 people or so, if you can start saying like, okay, my job is to come into the company and change X, Y, or Z things to tune this machine, but not actually to be a part of the machine, then I think you start to notice more opportunities to uh, delegate, hand off, and, and empower other people. Let's, let's talk about culture a little bit because I think you've, you've started to allude to 
a little bit about how you guys culturally operate. And I think the way you think about culture is, is really interesting. You know, you, you have four really strong values that I'd love for you to mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about. Um, but equally as importantly, I'd love to hear how you actually live your values. You know, Enron is kind of the famous example of this, of saying, you know, honesty and integrity were on the wall. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously we know how that story panned out. So talk a little bit more about your guys' distinct values and then, you know, how you, the, some of the tactical things that you put in place to actually live those values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we have four values. Uh, the first is karma, which is we want to have a positive impact on the world. That flows through into some of our uh, data privacy uh, policies and how we're pushing for regulation around third-party data to get rid of it so that there's a more of a focus on first-party data. Uh, it comes through into how we donate what money we would have spent on Friday lunches the company decides to donate to local charities. Uh, we make some larger, more strategic donations as well. Second value is tribe, which is not just supporting each other, but also being willing to give each other really um, uh, good feedback around what could have been done better. We're basically all here to accomplish the same thing, and the only way we do that is if we're um, teaching each other how to be better. Uh, The third is drive, which is we like to get shit done. And the fourth is focus, uh, which is not just sitting down and getting something done, but actually choosing the right priorities and deciding not to do some things that just aren't as important. Um, and I think it's these values are only alive in so much as they're actually uh, the things that are valued and that they are used as such every day. And so I think there, there are some things that you can do that are sort of obvious, like you can uh, recognize and reward people. We do this at all hands with the, what we call the Citrus Prize, which is for someone who has, has lived all four values. And we get up and talk about how they have lived all four values. Uh, you can do it through recruiting by making sure that people are uh, roughly aligned with these values before they even enter the building. But I think probably one of the most important things is actually aligning with performance reviews. So when I do performance reviews for my exec team, I literally grade them against the four values. They have roles and responsibilities, and I'll talk about those as well in, in my performance reviews with them. But a major part of the performance review is literally karma, tribe, drive, and focus. Like, have they achieved those four things? How are they doing against those four things? How are they pushing those four things in their org? It is literally the things that I value. Um, and if you are using it as the grading mechanism for performance, uh, I guarantee that you start to see it. That's interesting. Talk about the performance management process a little bit more. I'm interested in, in how you kind of run that and the balance of values and then, you know, grading on roles and responsibilities and such. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's a fairly standard performance review process. We do like once every six months. Uh, you get peer feedback and, um, and manager feedback and self-feedback, and then the manager, you know, synthesizes this all together and delivers it uh, in the performance review. Um, and we just include questions. Like some of the questions are just about the values. Um, and I, I it would, in fact, say that a company that doesn't grade the performance of their people along their values probably doesn't actually value those things. And how have you, have you going back to the cultural point, how have you thought about maintaining culture as you scale, right? Again, it, it kind of goes to a little bit of the earlier point that we were talking about of you know, speed and uh, agility and, and structure, et cetera. But, you know, obviously it's at different jump points of the organization, maintaining culture has its own different challenges. So how have you thought about maintaining culture as you've scaled the organization? When people say maintaining culture, they sometimes mean two different things. So uh, there's a culture which is more the sort of social atmosphere. I don't think you can maintain much of that as you, as you scale. Just the social atmosphere when you're five, ten people is just very different than when you're 
300, 400. Uh, and I don't think there's any way around that. Um, and so I, I think some efforts around maintaining culture go a little bit misguidedly into, into trying to scale that. I think the more important one is around maintaining the values. Like, are you able to ensure that people continue valuing those things? Um, and that just comes back to all of the enforcement mechanisms, how people are recognized, how they're graded. Um, are, they, are they fired or promoted based on those values? Um, and the slight nuance on it is, I think as a company scales, what is valued shifts slightly. And if you look at the really, uh, I think, companies that have really successfully scaled, like say Facebook, they actually went back and revisited some of their values at different points as they realized that their values had actually changed because they had a strong opinion early on that was no longer valid. So like move fast and break things uh, disappeared. It was, it was you know, move fast and, and uh, try not to break things as, as they scaled. Um, whereas I think other companies struggle to, struggle to change their uh, struggle to change their values, and that ends up holding them back. Um, there's a company that has uh, Keep It Simple as, as a value, and um, it's a company that we all, all know and, uh, and love, but it has prevented them from uh, moving as fast on product as, as they probably should, because the argument was always, well, the value is to keep it simple, so we can't ship X. Peter, you have an interesting perspective on this idea of balancing you know, short-term and long-term thinking. Talk a little bit more um, about that and the challenges in being able to execute against long-term thinking, because I think conceptually it's a it's an easy topic to understand, uh, but the big bridge in my mind always comes between talking about it and actually executing against it. I think that's where the challenges actually lie. So talk about that a little bit more. Uh, maybe two different flavors. One is just like how you, as a company gets bigger, how you allocate the time and resources of the company against uh, different priorities. So I actually think Mc McKinsey has a pretty good model uh, called the horizon model uh, for sort of your current products, emerging bets, and then new long-term bets, and how you think about allocating resources across those different bets. And I think Facebook adopted it and then uh, got a different name, and then it's sort of moved into the valley. And I'd say at a pretty high level, we, we do something similar internally in terms of thinking about how we, how we allocate resources. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure that we have anything uh, super, super groundbreaking there. I, I guess there, there are some long-term bets that you just have such strong conviction on that you can sort of are willing to uh, like bet the company on, I guess. So as an example, when we got started, like two examples of really long-term bets that uh, you know, we didn't hedge with any short-term bets. They just were the bets of the company. One was a focus on customer data. So when we first launched and we were moving data around from people's websites to these tools downstream, people were like, oh, well, can you move data, this other data from like Jira into a data warehouse? Or can you move data from our financial system into this other place? And we explicitly said, no, we're just gonna focus on customer data. Um, and that I guess was a long-term strategic bet that customer data was going to be strategic, more strategically valuable than a bunch of these other data sets. Uh, and that it would allow us to uh, sort of pinpoint a particularly valuable uh, part of the ecosystem around customer data. Uh, and another one was around, with respect to customer data, there's a lot of pressure to become a data broker or to do things with third-party data. This is what data management platforms and companies like LiveRamp and Axiom do, um, where they buy and sell data. And I'd say in the marketing world, there's a lot of interest and pressure to do things 
like that to help companies buy and sell data. That's explicitly not what Segment does. And we took an opinion very, very early on that we felt that that was uh, unethical and misaligned with how the consumers understood what was happening to their data. And frankly, for the first four years, it looked like kind of a, it looked like we were wrong because like, as far as the world could tell, consumers didn't care about this. And I think in the last year and a half now, you are beginning, beginning to see uh, consumers becoming aware of how their data is used and starting to be pretty upset about how data is bought and sold um, between companies. So I don't know, those are, those are maybe two longer term bets that um, we felt a lot of conviction on early on and, and still feel conviction on. Um, and so I think it's important for companies to have a few of those, but uh, otherwise, I think sort of a, from a resource allocation perspective, I think McKinsey actually has this nailed. Hmm. Well, Peter, as we, as we round out the conversation, I'm going to ask you the Peter Thiel question, and I'm going to apply it to company building, which is, you know, what's one truth about scaling an organization you believe that very few people agree with you on? Yeah, Thiel's original question was about company strategy. Uh, yep. <laughs> but sure, let's play. Um, so I, I think product market fit determines far more about the rate and success of scaling than anything else. Uh, I think I think great sales and marketing execution, pricing and packaging helps. Uh, but I think like really nailing product market fit or like 10% improvement on product market fit will carry you through all sorts of operational errors and uh, sins of omission and so forth. I, I think it, it is worth getting product market fit exactly right at the very beginning. Well, Peter, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm glad you were able to make the time. So you know, thanks again for joining us and really enjoyed having you on today. Thanks so much for having me.